This is the Blue Cloud Podcast, empowering the entrepreneurial lifestyle with insights on the leading trends in the mobile and digital landscape, turning ideas to empires. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Carter Thomas coming to you live from WeWork Amsterdam in in the Netherlands. Beautiful place. We've had some incredible weather. I'm here gearing up for the Blue Cloud Europe event, which I'm very, very excited about. So thanks so much for tuning in. Now, today we have an interview with somebody who is one of the most well-known names and figures in the mobile app, or specifically in the mobile game business. Uh, Trey Smith has been around for, I don't know, four or five years now, at least in the mobile world. And I don't have a specific bio that I should be reading right now, but I do know just from talking to Trey and from uh, from our history together, he has built, I believe, four separate companies that uh, are either close to or well into the seven-figure mark. Uh, he is responsible for having over 7,000 customers at Game Academy, which was the leading resource to teach people about the game business, about the the up and coming game news, connect with other people. It was just a huge community. And that evolved into what is now BuildBox, which is a lot of what we talk about in our conversation today. BuildBox is by far the most successful drop and drag game builder in the marketplace right now. They have to date, well over 50 games from students that have been published, including many of Trey's. I think Trey has himself over 25 million downloads, uh, I think this year, from his apps that he's made on BuildBox. So the list goes on. Uh, you know, He's got more accolades than most people in this business could ever dream of having, and it seems that he's just getting started. And I think that you'll really enjoy this conversation. We talk about not only apps and gaming and build box, but we talk a lot about what goes into making really top tier products and how you negotiate the balance of life, especially in a place like Silicon Valley and what we're both really excited about and you know what's, what's helped Trey get to where he is. And he has a lot of amazing actionable insights for anybody out there, whether you're just getting started or if you're wondering how you get your next 100 million downloads. So, I was I had a great time doing this. Trey's a really great guy. Go check him out at buildbox.com and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Trey Smith. This is the Blue Cloud Podcast with Carter Thomas. Hi Trey, welcome to the show again. Carter, thank you, my man. Very excited to be here. This is great. This is great. And for everyone out there, we did a first round, but we are, uh, I guess my computer succumbed to the fog of Hawaii and we kept, uh, the bandwidth kept going out. So we decided to re-engage with blazing six-figure bandwidth uh, back in California. So we're good to go today. We all feel really bad for you, Carter, chilling out in Hawaii with your so terrible internet. Yeah, it was just like the biggest first world problem situation. Uh, but it's great. And um, so this is great. We uh, we have a bunch of really good questions. And uh, I know a lot of people are, are just keep hitting me up about, about this conversation. So I'm super stoked about this. 
And I guess I, I would be remiss to uh, leave out the fact that we we chatted uh, for the first time in a while a couple of weeks ago at a Grateful Dead show down in Mountain View, about a mile away from Google headquarters. So it's very very nice to to start with that uh, with that tone for this for this interview. Yeah, that was cool. Was that the last show of their tour this year? Uh, that's a good question. I I don't know if it was. I think it was. I think we caught the last show. That yeah, that was really fun, man. That was a good time. Yeah, it was great. Um, and so I, you know, obviously you've been in the app game for a while now, and there's so much to cover. But I always really like to cover the the backstory a little bit. And a long time ago, you were you were more on the sales side, both uh, cars and then also real estate. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, started out in the car business, moved to real estate, then got into technology. That's 100% right. And I, I'm always fascinated because I think sales, the more I get into business, uh, the more you learn how powerful sales are, but also just just understanding what, how sales works. Was there anything that you, like by selling cars, by selling real estate, that you learned specifically that you think that you've carried through to today? Definitely. Probably not in the ways that you would think. We'll start with the car business, but but definitely so. So I, I was not a good car salesman. That, that was not my forte. I was never my talent, never really lied there. Um, to be honest, I didn't really like it. Right. And I don't think that's a big secret. But what I did learn there was a lot about technology, believe it or not. So I, I worked in the car business. It was a family business from like 96 off and on until 2001. And I was the internet guy there. So I made uh, the first website, one of the first websites I remember, period, in the small, smallish town I'm from, Macon, Georgia. Um, and, you know, I mean, it was like I had to learn how to do basic HTML coding and manually put everything up there. So I actually got a lot of technical skills there. I started, we were talking about, me and Carter are both uh, fans of video and videography and stuff. I learned a lot about cameras there. I had the first digital camera I'd ever had back then. They were so expensive and they were on the, you know, the small floppy disk, the we talked about this before. Is it three and a half inch or no? Yeah, I can't remember the inches now. <laughs> 1.44 meg. I know that. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, so it was running on that. So I learned a lot about technology. But yeah, definitely sales too. And, you know, sales has been an important part of my life for sure. I don't know as much in the game world, in the app world for me. I mean, definitely with Buildbox itself, right? To know how to present a product and to know how to um, to make a product is, is part of sales as well. You got to create something that's appetizing. So I guess so. I guess that would be how sales would be important um, in apps and games because it's all about the creation right it's all about creating a good product more so than than any other business in the world because you don't have a website that's pushing this thing or if you do no one's going to see it it doesn't matter so you know creating products with sales in mind because you know people are going to buy it or use it or enjoy it is um is probably a subliminally subliminal thing you know yeah totally. i think and i think that there's it wasn't until I started to learn about sales, you know, both offline and online, that I just started to realize how fundamental it is just to to really listen to what people want, you know, as opposed to just being to shoving things down people's throats and saying, hey, you know, here's what you here's the best price or, you know, weekend sale or whatever. Like that's not really sales as much as the fu the foundation of business, which is what do people want? 
like, are, are you putting the right thing in front of them at the right time? And, you know, I guess that's marketing to a certain extent, but, you know, being in a small business and being in that environment, you just start to absorb that, those lessons very quickly. Yeah. And you know, the biggest thing is I'm from a long line of, of entrepreneurs in my family and that was just in our blood and it was always talked about. So, um, you know, I, I probably learned more even than sales, just about entrepreneurship. I saw people have hard times. I saw people have really good times. Um, you know, I learned the work ethic. You know, I know you know that and a lot of people I think who want to be entrepreneurs who aren't yet or who haven't had the success maybe they wanted to, they probably don't really know the work involved. I um, mean, I know a lot of people do as well, but um, but I saw a lot of that stuff early on, so there weren't a lot of surprises that way. I knew it wasn't going to be easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny. We, we were talking earlier about Gary Vaynerchuk, and one thing that I really like about him and his videos is every once in a while he'll he'll talk about how before he started documenting a lot of his life, people knew that he worked a lot and he talked about how hard entrepreneurship is, or at least how, how hard he hustled for himself. And it was only until that he put it on video and he, he brought in all these people to help him out that this whole community of people started realizing how, how many hours he's putting in, how much energy he was putting in. And I totally hear you. I think that the, uh, the level, not even the level of work, but just the type of work that goes into entrepreneurship is a very special thing and it just takes experience. You just gotta, you gotta learn it for yourself. Yeah. Gary's interesting, man. I mean, that guy, he might take James Brown's title as the hardest working man in show business. Cause he is a, he's always hustling. Yeah, he is. It is unreal. He, uh, yeah, he, well, that's another conversation. He's just like completely the next level. But so you were, so you were at a small business, the family business, the real estate and you know, dot, 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 all of a sudden you're, you're starting to work online and you're start you specifically, you get into, uh, the app business with an app called Colo's journey. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. That's 2011. And I actually started making it in 2010. Uh, before that was already learning and creating businesses around software. I already had a couple successful companies that were selling software. So I had a good, understanding of that, but never had made a video game and never made an app. So I went to Odesk and hired a programmer. And back in 2010, the pool of people in Odesk was really good. This is before the app craze hit. It was before everyone started jamming up their prices. um, And then all the good programmers got picked up. And there's still really good people out there. I know plenty of people who are finding we hire a lot still off of Odesk. But anyway, so I hired a guy and it ended up being uh, Nick Rudinko, who's our CTO and a major, major part of Billbox, works in an office with me every day. Um, really, I, I call him the co-founder of Billbox because he's been here since the beginning. And yeah, so that was really an amazing journey because he was the first programmer I hired to ever make a game. Um, since then, we've hired tons of different programmers. Uh, right now, I think we have 10 developers total on our team, something like that, um, you know, for build boxing. We still are obviously uh, making games and but we only use our own software, but we do custom things sometimes as well. Prototypes for the future versions. And it's been an amazing journey. But that first game was called Colo's Journey. No pun intended. <laughs> and it was featured by Apple. Um, did not do extremely well off the bat, but I learned, God, I learned so much back then, man. It was all trial and error. So uh, the first game, I, I spent $1,700 making Colo's Journey. It got featured by Apple. It made $300 the first week. 
which was pretty good, especially back then. I think I made it paid. Yeah, I made it paid. But I also did some internal promotions and stuff like that with my email list and uh, to get the word out. And then, but that didn't make enough money back, right? I mean, that wasn't going to near cover the cost and I wanted to get profitable on it. Um, so back then, and I know I've told you this story before and a few others, but not many. Back then, you could do the stupidest trick in the world, and this worked. And for everyone listening, this does not work anymore, unfortunately. But you could name an app a single keyword, and you would rank number one for that keyword. So I made all the music in Colo's Journey. I produce uh, audio production, house music, stuff like that. So I made all the music. Um, it had cool animations and all this stuff, and Nick did all the animations. And so we named the game Music. And I remember telling Nick, I was like, hey, look, make a logo just with the word music. And, and Nick's a passionate guy, man. He's really passionate about video games and about creation and all this stuff. And you could tell he was just like, I don't want to name this thing freaking <laughs> music. This is so stupid. But we did. He did. He was like, okay, you know, and that's when me and Nick work great together because uh, a lot of times it's me like, no, I'm telling you, this is going to work. He's like, no, it's stupid. <laughs> so we fight it out. Uh, but anyway, so we named it Music. It ranked number one for music. And I think the game went on to make about $28,000 that year. So really good, profitable you know, thing there. Um, and then we did the whole model and improve thing. I, I made a whole new soundtrack in the studio and we made a sequel, new characters, new animations, all this stuff, um, added some new features to the game. And we called it instead of music, we called it uh, the game. <laughs> so we ranked number one for the word game. And that one made around $30,000 that year. And then we made another game called Free. And we ranked number one for the word free. <laughs> and that one did better than both of those. But now I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because after we did Colo's Journey um, and before I figured out that you could name an app a single keyword and rank for it, we actually made a second game. And that was in the middle of 2011 called Jump Pack. And Jump Pack was my first real first real game testing this whole model and improve theory and real quick it's a very simple theory it's what i've based everything all my businesses and, and and all my games and any success we've had has been loosely based on this theory which is you model something that works that you know works instead of going out there and trying to reinvent or invent something totally from scratch you have no clue if it's going to be successful but you don't copy it you don't reskin it we were never into that or yeah, we tested everything but that wasn't the mainstay of our companies and then you want to improve upon that. So I was a really big fan of a game called Doodle Jump. And Doodle Jump was actually modeled and improved from a game called Poppy Jump. A lot of people don't know that. I played the hell out of Poppy Jump. And it was a, it was the exact same game as Doodle Jump. But Doodle Jump added in enemies. It added in cool things like these black holes, the tears that you know he could go through. Um, it also added in better graphics, much better than Poppy Jump. So I did the same thing. I wanted to add in what I thought were better graphics. If you Google Jump Pack, you can see what this looked like. I, I still to this day think it, it looked better. The Doodle style that I was never a big fan of. And we added in really cool power-ups, multiple levels. You could customize your character. Still the most the deepest game we ever created to this day was Jump Pack. And we spent $5,000, or I spent $5,000 on it. At this point, Nick did not work full-time with the company. I think I hired him full-time around, around through this. And that went on to do really good. That did break the top 25. It was featured by Apple. It was also 
a top 25 game, and uh, that went over went on to make over $100,000. This is all pretty early App Store stuff. So, um, yeah, so from there on, we made a game called Monster Magic, which was a model and improve over Jump Pack. And then we made a game called Maze Plus. All these games were featured by Apple. And actually, Monster Magic wasn't, but the, the others were, and they hit the uh, top 25 as well. And that kick-started for a couple years. And, um, yeah, so that's kind of the dawn of my whole app industry the beginning the beginning of it all yeah when you mentioned that you were before the app business you were you know you knew how to build some software what made you decide to start doing apps and at what point did you say i'm going to transition fully into apps or you know what did you see in the marketplace that that got your attention because obviously everybody saw apps uh back in i guess what was this 2010 2011 right around then and you know only a handful of people really knew that it was legit or it was serious or you know were willing to take a shot at it Uh, especially when you have something that's already successful like what you were doing what was that thought process like how did you make that transition Yeah, you know, to be honest with you, I didn't know what was going to happen with the App Store at that time, especially when I did Colo's Journey in 2010. It wasn't like I, you know, I would love to tell you, oh, I knew that it was going to be huge and all that, but that's not true. I mean, as I mentioned, I was already making software products. I had a TV software product that did extremely well and and some other ones as well. And so I, I had a blog where I was talking about this stuff. I had a small following online where I was talking about building software and when I started posting on Facebook and on my blog about creating apps, it, people were so much more interested in that. So that was the first clue to me. It was like, wow, this is interesting. I can post something about creating software, about hiring someone and, and building out like a piece of business software, and no one really cares about it. And, and But I can talk about this, and people are really excited about it. And on a personal level, I've, I've always been a gamer, you know, like a lot of people from our generation, grew up on Nintendo, all that kind of stuff. So it was a dream made true for me because for the first time you could actually budget and do this for a couple grand. Hmm. You know, if you want to make a PC game or something, it was going to be really expensive back then. But Objective-C and all this stuff really helped out the the even smaller than the indie game scene, but the, the budget game scene, I guess we'll call it. So, but yeah, so af- after seeing a lot of people interested in that, I started shifting focus on that. And then it turned into Game Academy. I started selling a course called the iPhone system about how to create iPhone apps. And then I had one called the mobile game system about how to make games. And I had a blog. It used to be Trey Smith blog. I just I'm on Facebook now. I killed that domain years ago. But um, yeah, and you know, and, and so then that kept kind of blowing up. I wrote a post about Angry Birds, and Angry Birds was the really hot stuff, just like Minecraft was last year. And Angry Birds, I did a lot of research to show that they were falling in the charts. And I did a big blog post, really big blog post talking about this. And it hit number one on Hacker News. I was picked up on the New York Times and a bunch of websites out there. I'm trying to remember there was a lot of other really big ones. And so uh, that day, I think we got 150,000 hits to the blog that day and like 90,000 the next day. And and that really kind of kick-started that little following. And I was like, wow, people are really interested in this stuff. So I started selling courses and talking about that. 
And then um, I was like, this is weird. I'm like some dude selling courses on my blog. I need to put something together a little bit more professional, kind of like you did with Blue Cloud. I made Game Academy, um, which was a a really fun project that did extremely well, had really awesome people working in that organization, great customers, over 7,000 customers over a few years. Um, Yeah, so that whole transition all kind of happened at the same time. It was like, I mean, it was literally from making my first game to having Game Academy and teaching people how to make games all within a year or something Mm. like that. And we were early enough to where we started figuring out things that other people didn't know really quick. And I've told you this this story before as well. As soon as Jump Pack in 2011 hit the top 25, I um, messaged every single person who had a game, either the top 25 or the top 50. Um, and on that list of people, and I emailed them, I just looked at their support page, emailed them, and I said, hey, my name is Trey. You don't know me. I have a game in the top 25 called Jump Pack. I'm just trying to network with some people. I figured since you have a top 25 game, maybe we can share some secrets. I'll tell you some stuff that's working for me. And at the time, it was TapJoy. It was a company. You could buy incentivized installs and push your game up to the top, and it was actually profitable. So I would tell them that in that email. It's like, for example, right now we're spending money on TapJoy. We're actually getting a positive ROI. So I said that to every single person in the top 25. That included Guy, who founded RevMob, Keith and Natalia, who made Temple Run. Um, It included the guys behind Best Cool Free Games, the guy that made that checkers game and chess game that's still like ranked high. I think he has solitaire and a couple other ones. Oh, who else? It was a lot of people who were really big. Oh, uh, Victor from Fluic that made Plumber's Crack and Streaker Run and Office Jerk. And every single one of them replied back and was like, yeah, I'm in. So I started a mastermind and learned a ton. It was like the that that would have been my summer of 69, you know, it would have been two, <laughs> 2011 because it was such a transitional year. And so, and no one knew these algorithms. No one knew, you know, I mean, there's so many weird little things too, like naming, you know, your app, a, a single name, the company name, Guy figured out if you named your company, something like best, cool, free, fun games, you would rank number one for all those terms, even stronger than the uh, app name. So it, it was so much crazy stuff going on there. And, um, and it was a really good time to break into the scene if, if you wanted to teach stuff and, and do that. So, yeah, so that's kind of the uh, the beginning of or the second part of that era. I think it's super cool, too, to, to, to touch on what you said before about how you saw a response from like when you posted about different things, you saw a response about certain different topics. I remember Tim Ferriss talking sometime about how Facebook and Twitter for him was such a a monumental shift for his bit uh, after the four hour work week, because it allowed him to get feedback so fast on what he was going to write his chapters on for his next book. And he could just post about something and he could just see what the response was. And if it was huge, he would write about it. And if it wasn't, he wouldn't write about it. And I think that that's such a, that's such a great way to just gauge what, what the market demand is. Yeah. And, you know, it's just really interesting with with any technology being around when it first takes off is always a good idea. And and we're always trying to do that with VR and AR. We're looking at that very closely. I mean, I'll give you a great example. Go email the people who created Temple Run now. You're not going to get a response. But when I did that, it was three months before, four months before they made Temple Run. Right. And a lot of the early people are hustling like crazy in that scene early on. Um 
And not to say that you can't still do it now. I mean, God, look at David. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. color switch. It's just changed now, right? It's, it's changed now. It's not about um, tricks anymore. At the beginning, it's always about tricks. I was around when Google AdWords first started. You know, I had the TV software. And, you know, the trick with that was I could get five cent clicks off of the Google content network now called the display network. We were um, people would type in or we would bid on the keyword dishwasher and just crush it and get two cents clicks and then people would convert. And that would never happen now. So, you know, there's a couple lessons there. It's good to be early, but it's also good to know what's working now. And that's I mean, I'm always listening to podcasts like this and watching videos and reading stuff um, to see what other people are doing, uh, because now the stuff that worked back then wouldn't work now. Now you want to find a publisher if you're going to be in the game world and, and we'll cover all that, too. But, yeah, it was it was a crazy time. It was very Wild West back then. Yeah, yeah, I'm talking like I was 13, (laughs) you know, and and, in some Texas with in the middle of nowhere. But uh, but, you know, look, you know, it was it was God, that's how fast stuff moves now. You know, it was five years ago, but it feels like it was. Yeah, it it, I mean, things every six months, it seems like, you know, things are things are shifting, things are changing. And I think it's also the the explosiveness of what happened back then when you did get something right. Where, you know, you did wake up and I know for myself, the first big one was when I did a Gagnum style app. And I think myself and Manny Coates were the only two people in the app store with a, a Gagnum style app. And, you know, next thing you know, it's, you know, six figures in your bank account in, the, in a week. And I remember that. I remember. Yeah, I remember he was up in like number two or something for a while. Crazy. Yeah, it was, it was just like when you can have those that kind of explosiveness the the velocity of of the market is going to move just as fast and i think that's why it feels like you know an ice age ago um and with so you kind of touched on the evolution of colo's journey into the the courses and the online and then uh, with all those training programs you always included a building or a piece of software with it i shouldn't say always but uh, game builders or app builders became a staple of what you were building. And uh, two questions, I guess. One is, how, like, how did you make that transition from saying, all right, I'm just going to make all these awesome apps into I want to build software? And the second question being, uh, well, let's just start with that. How did, you, how did you decide to go from, all right, I'm in apps, and now I'm going to go to this kind of secondary market? Yeah, it was uh, so first off, getting into the app business and the teaching business all happened kind of at the same time. It was a total accident, right? You know, again, it's one of those things I wish I could say I planned, but I didn't. Um, But then Game Academy ended up crushing it, right? So this company was doing doing very well. Uh, We were definitely leaders in, in that space at the time. And and things were going extremely well. But there's one thing that's interesting about the Wild West times when someone could buy a course and you can tell them very specific things that get dynamic results instantly, then they're going to tell their friends and then their friends are going to come buy this course and they're going to talk about it. And that's going to help explode your business. But that's a lot of wild west stuff, right? Because back then we could have a course in the iPhone system and say, look, name your app, this, do this, do this. And you'll probably make a thousand dollars this week. <laughs> it, would, it would work. You could do that, you know, but now it's more about building foundational businesses, 
about having a really good game, about learning game design and stuff like that. So as the competition increased, the tricks weren't working. It was just really more about building foundational business skills. Um, so I saw in the future on that, that, you know what, I think I'm going to want to move and shift this into another direction. Um, because as the market matures, I don't think there's going to be as much of a need. When I started Game Academy, you could go to YouTube and you could type in start an app business or start a game or make a game. And you might find five videos on that. Now go to it. You'll find you know five that were uploaded today. Mm. So as a market matures, so does the amount of information that comes out. So does the amount of quality of information because people are sharing it. And so does the just sheer vast amount of, of information. Um, now, so this was very serendipitous for us as well, because as you said, I've always liked to package up software, whether it was source codes. Um, I think we were the first to do that where we'd sell a course and we'd have source codes in there. And, then that would branch off into being little, I mean, we even had software that could help you come up with a name that would crawl the app store and do some cool stuff. So simple type of software like that, like nothing complex, source codes and really basic software. Then we noticed that the biggest problem we had, our customers rather had at Game Academy, was getting ripped off by programmers. I talked about this at the beginning. In 2011, the pool of programmers was huge. Your supply was enormous, your demand but the demand for programmers was very low. Well, that changed by 2013. The demand was insane. Everyone knew apps were hot. It was the new gold rush, literally called that in New York Times. And the supply was dwindling because people like me were stealing guys like Nick, right? Mm -hmm. So around this time, we knew that the biggest problem people were having, our customers, was hiring programmers. And we were trying to figure out if there was a way to, uh, to solve that. And I asked Nick, I was like, man, is there any way we can make software that just makes a game for them? And, you know, he was a little reluctant, but we'd had a slight amount of experience with that, with the games we had made. Jump Pack was modeled and improved. Really, it was based on a, a source code that we were fiddling around with the free game source code. Uh, so was Maze Plus. It was all, even though they were very different games, they were kind of based on the same source code. It was Nick's engine that he created. And it was a pretty complex engine on OpenGL. And so then I asked him if he could pretty much do what we had done internally, which is build these different games on that engine, but have it so other people you know, could do it in an easier fashion. So long story short, we made Project Zero. We did not sell it. I actually gave it away as a bonus for anyone who bought um, Chad Moretta's first app empire. So that kind of dates when that was all going down. So I didn't actually sell that for anything. Uh, just as a bonus. And people went nuts for that. I mean, they were really excited about this. And we were not expecting that either. We were thinking this would just be kind of a cool thing to throw in there. Um, but people were really excited about it. So then we knew that we, we had something here. And we ended up making Project Zero Two. We made Project Mayhem that went with a really big B2B type product. And then we did Project Mayhem Two. And then about that time, yeah, I started really enjoying the software throughout this whole period. I mean, that that to me was I was getting really passionate about that. And I saw that there was a big need for this. It wasn't just a small community that we were cultivating, that there was a lot of people out there who wanted to create games and didn't know how to code. I mean, that was our it was really that's the pitch. That's the elevator pitch. It's like the 
before you could even close the door pitch. <laughs> that simple, you know? And uh, yeah, that was a big need. So we rebranded to Buildbox, and Buildbox was actually sold under Game Academy. Then uh, Buildbox started dwarfing the sales uh, of, of Game Academy. And uh, as of like, I think a month ago, we shut Game Academy down just to focus on uh, Buildbox solely. Wow. When you were building these these uh, game builders, did you ever think about getting into the greater app builder market? I know last time we chatted about a couple examples like App Maker or M A K R, and uh, I can't. I'm, I'm blanking on a couple other ones, but some of the the drag and drop social media style apps that appealed to the non gaming. Did you ever think about getting into that quote unquote larger market? Yeah, you know, I'm still thinking about that, but I only want to do that once we dominate where we are. And we're, I mean, besides Unity, our our customers are having more success, and and I think that uh, that I mean, we're right where I want to be, right? Mm. But I don't want to split my focus. You know, I, I feel like we're right where I want the company to be right now. We're growing extremely fast, faster than than any of us planned. And I, I don't want to mess that up, but there is definitely some interest there because if we do move into that market, it will be very different than how those other guys are doing it. Um, it, it would be, I don't want to say too much, but where we're moving with Buildbox over the next couple of years is going to be very interesting. It's going to be very open. Um, and if I were to do something in the app market, I wouldn't want to make business apps. I'd want you to be able to make Instagram. And so we will... We will definitely entertain that, and it's something that that comes up a good bit. But I don't want to um, to split our resources too much at this point. Right? Yeah. Uh, you know, being being number one in a small market is always always better than being number twenty in a in a huge market. Right? Yeah. You know, definitely. And you know, and, and there's something happening here, man. We're we're seeing it with codeless development and and all of this and to be at the forefront of that, you know, we're in a very fortunate position. So yeah, but there's, yeah, I think there's some interesting things. I I think that will be disrupted very heavily that market. So, um, when, when it gets closer to time, we'll look at it. Very cool. Now a little bit, you know, obviously build box for anyone who has been living under a rock with the app business has been responsible for, or I should say is a huge part of, I don't even know how many featured apps you guys have had or like 50 or 60 at this point as of, you know, this month. And that'll probably climb to 100 before we know it. And uh, it's we've talked to a lot of different uh, some some developers, some people who use Buildbox, you know, Simon Crack, Kevin, David and a handful of others. And they've had some really amazing hits. They've also created uh, some great games what are some of the, the the elements that you're seeing that you've seen both personally and with your students with Buildbox that have gotten them to the top using Buildbox? Because obviously some people use Buildbox and they they don't get featured, and then some people seem to get featured over and over again. You know, what would you say some of the the biggest differences are between those uh, those two endeavors? You know, it's really simple. And I just made a video that I released on my Facebook. I know you saw you mentioned that today. And I made that video after I'll give the quick breakdown and anyone can see this on my Facebook, facebook.com, Trey Official. And I was talking to Zeb, co-founder of Fortify Games at Color Switch, guys that publish Color Switch. 
And I asked him, I said, hey, do you get sent a lot of Build Box games? And he said, yeah, I do. I do, actually. And I said, how's the quality? He said, you know, it's good, but sometimes people think they have a great game, and I'm just shocked, you know, because the quality is just not there. And I think what happens is a lot of people do not understand the level of quality, the amount of polish, how much they have to put into a game to make it worthy to a publisher. And that's what that video was about, which is the really short, you don't have to go watch it, I'll tell you right now, is if you want to be with Ketchup, then your games have to be better than Ketchup games. They have to look better, they have to sound better, they have to play better, and they have to be more fun. That's simple. Do that, you'll get published every single time. And if you want to get featured by Apple, then you need to get published because the market now is very, very different than how it's been. Now, I'm not talking, I'm not an expert with apps. I don't claim to be anymore. I did know a lot about that and kept up with it a few years ago, but now I'm solely in the game market. But with the game market, it is extremely important to, uh, to get published. And the people who get published are the ones who consistently make really, really good games like all the people that you just mentioned. Um, so, it's no wonder because they figured out the format. And, and I mean, how many times has Simon been featured or, and published is kind of the same thing because these publishers have great, great connections with Apple. And I think it's like 10. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right yeah. And there. Kevin. So, I mean, these guys and Kevin's the same. I mean, they obviously have figured out the uh, the formula, right? It's uh, I mean, and it's feast or famine, the people who figure out the formula. And the formula is simple. Again, I'll tell you right now, the formula is just quality. Like when what most people think is – their great game, their game is like 50% done. And, and, and I will tell you, man, it's the same with video editing. It's the same with creating a company. It's the same with learning how to draw or anything. I mean, like, it's really fun, man. It's inspiring to create stuff, right? Oh, my God, I'm making this game. I feel so good. This is great. Honey, look at this. Look how amazing I am. No, I'm serious. Look at this. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just absolutely, I know you're blown away. Just calm down. <laughs> this is amazing. Oh, my God, I feel, God, I feel, God, I'm just going to run into the wall. All right, so you feel so great. But that's when people go, you know what? You know what? Screw it. I'm sending it to everybody. All right. Well, what's Ketchup's email? Give it to me. Give it to me. No, I don't care. Give it to me. You know? <laughs> and, and listen, that's like that good feeling part is not what it's about. Hmm. That's not when you're so, supposed to submit something. Now you have to do the part that everyone hates. The three weeks of going over those levels over and over again. God, why is he falling there? Why is he falling there? Is it a bug in Build Box? I'm mad at Trey. Okay. No, it's not. I forgot to do this. Okay. what? And, and you have to tweak. You got to test. You got to test or you might find a bug. We're sorry if you do. <laughs> and then you got to keep on doing it. You keep on doing it. And then you're so sick of the game. You absolutely hate it. You never want to play it again because you've been tweaking and testing this thing for three weeks straight. And I've said that so many times. Your game's not ready to submit unless you hate it. And you know who always agrees with that when I post something like that? Every time you'll see a like from Kevin, from Simon, from David, from these guys, from Florian. Because they know that's what it takes, right? Mm -hmm. So – the amount of people, the percentage of people who go through the correct polishing stage to build a game that is really, really great, that is really, really fun, that doesn't have any weird things, the player, the user is not dying by accident and thinking, wow, that game cheated me. No one can ever feel cheated when they're playing your game. They should never, ever feel like, oh, that's that's BS, man. 
You know, that shouldn't have happened. They should always feel like that it was their fault. Like, oh, I can't believe I did that. And once you finally get to that point, then it's ready to submit to a publisher. Right. There's a, I don't know if you've ever read the book by Seth Godin called The Dip, but the the premise being that, uh, I wish I could, you know, I'll have to put a graph in the show notes, but the beginning phases of entrepreneurship is kind of this linear, low left, high right curve. And then you plateau and then you start to have this low dip and you dip, dip, dip. And then you finally, at the very end, you skyrocket up to the, like you have this exponential growth. And he's like, the, the, the thesis being that 98% of people never make it through that dip. But the people who do, it's like that, uh, that saying of, the, you know, you're two feet away from the gold mining. And if you stop today, you're not going to find the gold or whatever someone says yeah. more eloquently than I do. But I think, <laughs> I think that can be applied to, to anything. And to this, anything. This sounds and, like a good example of that. That long diatribe of an example I just gave could be the same thing for building BuildBox, you know? I mean, we've seen a lot of people try to build products in this space, but you have to go the extra mile. If you want anything in life, you got to go the extra mile, mm -hmm. you know? If you want anything that's worth having. So it's, yeah, it, it's, it's tough. It's not an easy business. It's a very fun business, right? And to me, fun, easy things aren't typically that fun anyway, right? I like challenging I like challenging things, but, um, but yeah, that, that's the secret. You're hundred percent right. When you, when you talk about making game really good and really polished and knowing what makes a really good game, how much of that can be, I should say this, how much of that is how good you are at using build box and how much of that is reading books on game design or learning about color theory or you know having kind of extracurricular education is there is there one or the other that tends to be a bigger focus for people yeah so all right so first off on, on game design everyone's going to have a different opinion here right so this is just my warning warning I'm not saying this is going to work for everyone for me get the art of game design by jesse snell and skip it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Don't read the whole thing. You can if you want. If you really like reading, you know, the long books, then it's great. But skim it. Get the gist. All right. Um, understand why players want to be surprised. Um, understand the, the basic theory and mechanics of a game. It's got some really good information in there. All right. Now, then next with Buildbox, if you're using Buildbox, go to the tutorial section. Read all the tutorial names. And we've only hit the major stuff there, okay? So there are things, if you want to download the manual and learn about this very specific field that's deep inside the menu editor and something you know that's very complex, like in a very small section of the event observer, I'm not talking about that. But look at all of the tutorial names on there. And if you don't understand what any of them are, watch the video, because those are... I mean, they cover every major feature in BuildBox. And if you want to make something great, it would be really good to understand all that. Now, take it slow, right? I'm obviously speaking more towards someone who's a subscriber of BuildBox right now. If you are just downloading a demo or something like that, then play around with the demo files. Just get a feel for level editing. Just learn how to use the scene editor. Don't even go beyond there until you understand that. Learn how to make a level. Um, but yeah, it, it's a balance, man. You, you definitely need to know how to do both. Um, but I would say learn the basics, learn the foundation of game design first, then learn the software, 
And the point I'm trying to get to here, this all adds up to something, is after that, then you have to be really discerning to know if what you're creating is fun. And that is something that is hard to teach. Because a lot of people get really excited when you're creating. When you create it, releases endorphins. You get really excited. And I'll give you the best example ever. When I make music, sometimes and I will stay up till two in the morning working on a song and I'm so stoked. And I'm like, man, this is just, this is it. You know, I don't even do anything with this music. I, I have some stuff on iTunes, but I don't even release things anymore. I just do it for fun, right? I might put it in a game or something. And I'm like, man, this is awesome. And then the next day I wake up at six. I'm so tired, but I'm so excited because I made this great piece of music. I get in my car and I put it on and it's terrible. <laughs> And I hate it. And I'm like, I, how did I think that was good? But the problem is the end product wasn't good. Creating it was fun. Mm. And that is a very, very different thing that creates a similar feeling, right? So don't let your elation of creation dictate what you think is fun or not. Because it might not be fun. You're just enjoying creating it. So, And the best way to do it is the same thing I do with music is sleep on it. And then the next day you wake up and you play it again and you have to be very self-critical of your games. If there's something that feels off, chances are it's going to be explosively off for someone who hasn't been stuck building this for a very long time. I play test you know, games with my wife and kids all the time to get their opinion. But um, but yes, yeah, you want to understand the fundamentals of game design, you know, skim the book, at least read the whole thing. I've read the whole thing. It's great. But at least skim it. And you want to understand the fundamentals of the software. Look over the tutorials, at least know level editing really good. And then I think a really important part that's not often discussed is you have to be self-critical and don't let the elation of creation take over in your judgment. Mm. I think that there's a. Uh, there's some larger lesson about the idea of being able to release an unfinished product versus being able to swallow your pride and finish it yourself. You know, a, a loose example is if someone creates an app or whatever, and they post about it on their Facebook page or on Twitter or whatever, and they say, Hey, can you give me some feedback on this? When in reality, you know, part of me wants to say, you know, you know exactly what's wrong with this app. You know, if you sat down and you really looked at this, I bet you could come up with a list of 10 things. But I think that, that that's part of the process. That's hey, I, I am the worst at that. I do it to my wife. Hey, and, and you know what? There's some stubbornness about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, and saying that I make that mistake constantly. I'll work on a game here at the office and I'm not happy with it. And I will try my hardest to sell my wife on liking it so I don't have to work on it anymore. <laughs> And she will, and she's very good at this. And she's she she doesn't put up with these games. And she's like, absolutely not. You know, this is not fun. It's frustrating or whatever. Um, I'll get mad at Nick. I, I when I made the current game that we'll be releasing soon with, with Ketchup, uh, I, I let him play it. And he was like, this is so hard. But I've worked so hard on. You know, so there's a lot of mental. I think every game designer needs to meet with a psychologist, maybe, <laughs> because there's definitely a lot of mental stress and weird stuff going on with game design. I think that's I think that's true with with any creator, and I think that that's why, in a lot of ways, games can be our art in a lot of ways, and I think that art in general there's a reason why something that looks so simple may take 500 hours of work and thought to get done. And you can just tell, I think that's what makes art what it is. And it's, it's that 
process. I would also throw in, uh, along with the fundamentals, that there's a lot of value, at least I know for myself, to study people that have been able to do that really well. I think guys like Elon Musk and Steve Jobs are the two examples that come to mind. But you just you read books, you know, Steve Jobs' biography by uh, Isaac Walter or Walter Isaacson. It's a good example where you're in the room with him and Johnny Ive designing the iPhone for you know months on end. It's like just tiny details, and it's obviously an extreme example. But I think that just just learning how other people do it in other industries, or you know, and just seeing how that is done, or hearing about how that's done, and getting inspiration in that way. Is, is just as powerful. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about influence because this is a real big one for me. So, you know, right here I'm looking at, I've got seven business books here um, that and some development, even business kind of development books and stuff like that, including the Steve Jobs biography. Great. If anyone hasn't read that, I recommend it. I even have the Joni Ive biography as well. I haven't read it though, but it's up there. Um, and... Then when I go home, I listen to podcasts. I just got into this in the past uh, year. And I go through and I search out different topics that anything I'm struggling with, with, with the business. Right now, I'm listening to a great one from, oh, God, who is it? One of the guys from Y Combinator. He's talking about later stage. A lot of the stuff you find on startups and stuff is always talking about starting your company, which we've already done that, right? So I'm more interested in, like, the later stage stuff, expanding from 20 to 50 employees, for example, right? And and the different challenges that come with that. And I found the perfect – I mean, it's just, like, tailor-made for where we we are right now. And so I'm listening to that before that. Oh, my God. Uh, uh, this week in startups, uh, Jason Kalianikas, I think is his name. Mm -hmm. And he interviewed Ed Catmill, who started Pixar. All these talking about Steve Jobs, all these really good stories about Steve. And and he talks a lot about how the biography and the movies about Steve were not at all accurate, that everyone took this early Steve from these interviews when he was a real jerk. And then they wanted to impose that on his later life. But also a lot about culture. Right. Which is another thing that I'm really, really obsessed about right now is company culture. Um. And anyway, so that's what I listen to, you know, every day on the ride home. Then I work here in the office. I play Exploding Kittens on my iPad after I hang out with the family. And then I read uh, business books. Right now I'm reading um, – it's called like something in the cloud or something. It's by Mark Benioff of Salesforce. And so influence is so important, so important. If you If you fill your head with the Kardashians – then you're going to act and live your life like the Kardashians. If you fill your head reading ways to increase your game design, your game skills, then that's what you are going to do. So just wanted to throw that in there since it was kind of kind of flowing in that direction. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think for myself, the biggest the biggest shifts in my life, in my business, but also just in my life are when – when you meet somebody who is just on a completely different level than you are, I mean, and you know, you can meet them, quote unquote, meet them in books and you can, you know, listen to podcasts and then you might meet them in real life or whatever. But when you are just exposed to people at the next level, a level that you didn't even know was somebody else's normal, it was like your dream is their normal and their yeah. normal, someone else's, you know, vice, it keeps going. And when you just start to, 
wrap your head around that numbers start to to look very different and you know the like billion versus million starts to look very different or you know per, like a great game starts to look very different and it, it's it's an incredible experience and i think that that's that's what growth is all about is is being expo exposing yourself to that and really being open to learning from people yeah and it's the same with nick he listens to developer podcast and 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 consumes himself you know with that side so you know focus on what you want to do and, and consume yourself in it for sure very cool very cool with with uh build box kind of coming back a little bit to to the games of build box a lot of people who get into the gaming business the app business uh are just starting off I, and varying budgets but let's say from an indie for indie developers there's typically pretty small budgets uh after they've you know gotten in the software got a developer account they're ready to launch what advice would you give somebody who is willing to put in the work but they don't necessarily have much of a budget you know they're they're not coming in dropping fifty thousand dollars on a launch or anything uh, what piece of advice would you give that person so First off, budget-wise, if you're going to use Billbox, you will need an Apple account, um, which is $99. The software is $99 a month. You'll need that. And Android, I'm not sure how much it costs. You know, I think it's about 50 or 90 bucks, something like that. Uh, it's 25 but Oh, wow. They might, have, they might have changed it with the review process. Yeah. Um, Steam, if you want to do that, it's another 99 But I would, I would start off just with iOS, really. Um, if you're on a serious budget. Also, we do have a seven-day trial, and uh, then sometimes we run promotions that have 30-day trials after that, so um, we'll get, which will give you some time. But what, what I do with the game creation process is I open up Pixelmator. I use that instead of Photoshop because um, Photoshop's too much for me. It's like overcomplicates the process for me. Pixelmator on Mac is great. And I open up a 1920 by 1080, which is 1080p resolution, resolution of the iPhone 6 Plus. And, or actually I do that opposite, so it's portrait, 1080 by 1920. And then I usually have a white background because if you look at all the games that we make, they're typically white background. If you look at games that uh, most publishers publish besides Fortify, they've only published one, so they're 100% with the black backgrounds right now. <laughs> But every other publisher typically focuses on white backgrounds or at least light backgrounds. I start off with white. And then I grab shapes and I start building out what I think the game will look like. Now, this is not – nine times out of ten, it goes into the trash a couple of days later. This is just while I'm goofing off, when I'm in game design mode. So there's like multiple modes I'm in, right? I'm in game design mode where I'm trying to come up with ideas. Then once we come up with that idea, we'll spend, it used to be we'd spend a week, you know, but now we spend months because our games have gotten really complicated. Finishing it, sending it to the publisher, going back and forth and finally releasing. But when I'm in this first stage that these people will be in, um, in this imaginary scenario, then what I'm doing is just playing around with colors. I usually go to colorlovers.com or coolers is another cool site. You can Google palette, color palettes, and you'll find both of those and many more. And I'll look at different palettes and then I'll use the color picker tool to make my character. I'll start with a circle or a square usually. Um, and then I'll have a couple of platforms and I just try to get a design, a palette that I like. Maybe it's just a ground 
a white background, a character and like a platform and that's it. And everything's just really simple squares and circles. I'm just trying to get some inspirational colors and I'll play around. I'll find something I kind of like. I did this with face exactly how I built phases. And then I'll be like, wow, this is really popping. I really like this. I have the white with faces. I had white. I had turquoise background. Then I had, uh, you know, black for obstacles. And then I start playing around with different background colors. Ended up saving like four or five colors. So then I build out the game right there in Pixelmator. And I'll start thinking about, okay, this is a platform, but this is boring. Maybe we can make this bounce. Or, um, you know what, why don't we have this guy, if he was stuck to the left side, when you touch the screen, he goes to the right side. But you know what, let's put something in the middle. If he touches that thing in the middle, he's going to bounce back like a pinball machine. And I'll start playing around with these ideas. And I might make four or five and throw three away and just keep on going to that process until I'm getting something that I feel like is getting a little bit stronger. Then when I have something I feel like is, is actually doable then i export those which if anyone uses pixelmator i'll tell you the coolest tip ever first off you would want to make it about 70 percent the image size if you do 100 percent, those are really too big for build box you can put them in there but it'll just take up a lot of your atlas space so i make it about 70 percent resize the whole thing make sure you back it up before then and then you can click on like your character your layer and you just drag that layer you just click on it drag it drop it to your desktop and it will make an image and that's uh, and, and it will make an image right on your desktop. That's it. So then I'll export all those that way. It's super simple. Literally just highlight all the layers, drag them all and drop them straight to my desktop. The whole thing is exported, cut up perfectly. And I'll slide those into drag and drop them into Billbox. And then that uh, is it. I'll start building out the game, playing around with level design, tweaking all the different settings. Um, I always start with a preset using Creator that is similar. You know, if I have a platformer style game, I'll choose the platformer. If I have a uh, one where the character will be sliding on the left wall, then going to the right, I'll choose uh, the. I think it's called wall something, or you know, one of the different presets for that. I'll, I'll go through them, and uh, yeah. So then I start building out levels and going from there. Very cool. Yeah, and I would imagine from there it's just a, 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 a love of labor after that, or labor of love, I should say, after that, where you just you iterate and expand and, and keep keep pushing it. Yeah, exactly. So then I'll, I'll try to finish up all of the level design as much as I can, um, just for the main world, if I'm doing multiple worlds. And, and when I say, so actually, let's go ahead and finish this. So here's what I do next, all right? So then what I try to do is come up with 10 totally different scenes. Is if I'm making a random game. And when I say different, like one might have an exploding character in the middle. The next one's going to have more of a maze. If he touches the wall, he dies. The next one's going to have spikes on the floor. He's got to jump up to a certain area. I mean, I'm just making this up as I go along. But they will have 10 different themes. Then I go through, I click on that first one, and I want to make 10 variations of that theme. I click on the second one, I make 10 variations of that. When I'm done, I have 100 different scenes. That is our minimum for a published game because when you have 100 scenes, it's beyond the amount that's going to feel repetitive when someone's playing the game. So I'll build out, not necessarily all those scenes, I just do the 10 to start off with, okay? I don't go build 100 scenes, that would take way too long. So I build the 10, and then I start working on the UI. I start playing around with game over, I start playing around with the main menu, I start thinking about the game name, usually this is already kind of in the back of my head anyway, and I start building out the UI, um, and then I will finish out the levels for the whole entire main world. And then now we're every game we're doing, we're doing multiple worlds. Um, and so then we'll, you know, I'll come up with the idea for the second world, do the same thing, create 10, then um, expand those. And then you keep following that process until you feel like the game's complete and you're good to go. 
you publish it and you're done. <laughs> for you, per, for both for you personally and just in general, uh, I'm really interested in how music and sound effects play into your creative process. Uh, exactly what you just laid out. I personally think music is incredibly powerful with games. And I, I don't play games very much, but when I do play a really good game, uh, the one that's coming to my mind is Stack, which Ketchup published a while back. And there's sound effects when you're stacking the, the tower of whatever you want to call it, like blocks or whatever. It was just so cool how they the tone increased every time the, the stack went up. How much does that go in into the creative process from the beginning? And I say that because for videos, I tend to think about music very, very early on, and it, it can shape a lot of what I do. Yeah, definitely. So it used to be the most instrumental part of, of all of my games because – when we were manually crafting them with code, like jump pack, all that, the music was always almost done first, only because I had to wait on Nick to code it. So he would he would start coding it. And I would work on the music. I'd be done in a night or two. And then we had this kind of theme you know, that we would go on because I did all the music for jump pack and monster magic and all these games. Now, actually not monster magic, but jump pack and maze. And anyway, but now... It's a little bit different. Now, 100% focus on gameplay, to be honest with you. And I'll tell you why. We put music in a lot of our games. And if the music is the main focal point of the game, then it's really important the music you choose. Now, I'm not talking about sound effects yet. We'll, we'll discuss that, too. Uh, for example, Lines In, absolutely instrumental to music. It completely did exactly like you're talking about. It paved the way completely for that game. Um, Nick's game Sky. And so we do this a lot. Okay. So Nick's game Sky, same way classical music. You don't see classical music in video games very often. Um, we did it with Sky. Nick's doing it with his new game. And we did it with, um, I guess Nick's doing it with his next two games. And of course, we did it with Line Zim, which was the number one game in the App Store. That was our, our biggest hit. But if I'm not doing something like that, where the sole point of the game is to flow with this music, then now we're leaving music out completely. And I'll tell you why. So I've talked about, and I talked about in this video we put on Facebook today, if you want to get with a publisher, do research on their most successful games. And if you go look, we publish mainly with Ketchup. If you go look at their most successful games, none of them have music. Stack, let's see, 2048. What's the uh, jump, the ninja game? where he slides out the, the rod. That one didn't have music. Zigzag, no music. Jelly Jump, no music. And I found that fascinating, that the most downloaded games from their roster had no music. So now we're putting the focus on sound effects. Um, for the most recent game, Aaron Feliciano, um, who helped us a lot with that game in the beginning. He picked out some really cool sounds for it. And to be honest with you, we, we launched a product called Billbox Master Collection. And it has like 5,000 sounds built into a piece of software called Soundbox. Um, it's not available for sale right now, but that is all we use for sounds now because there's so many in there. You just like, if you want a coin sound, it's got 300 and we just pick one from there. But yeah, it's it's a very important part. And, and I do a lot of sound layering as well. So I very rarely will just get a single sound like for a coin. When we're doing sound effects, I will get a coin, 
glass breaking and a few other sound effects um, and then you know pull them together and, and again we use soundbox but you can use um, audacity there's free software out there you can use for that as well but yeah so sounds an important part it's it's the last thing that we do unless the whole game is based on sound got it yeah that's that's interesting because uh, I never even I mean it kind of goes to I think we chatted about this last time we talked the idea and you, I think you also mentioned this in your video one of the best things you can do is go research the publisher that you want to be working with and look at the games they're already they're already ta- they're already publishing and you know asking yourself what well, do they even have music and you know something as simple as that can make a big difference in a in a decision they might make yeah and you know publishers all of them they want to work with with smart people who are going the extra mile you got to think if 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 they're getting 300 submissions a week and your submission is identical to all those or you're the exact average of all of those then your chances are zero that they're going to reply because they are only going to have a chance to reply and work with the top five percent so how do you become the top five percent well you have to go beyond and do more than 95 percent of the people therefore if you contact someone this is all a business you contact someone and you go hey you know i'm working on a game after analyzing your roster and i saw that your most successful games have these five qualities and you know these five qualities i think uh um, are kind of instrumental to their success so what i did is built a game with this in mind you'll see we have this 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 the designs like this but you do all this in like one paragraph because that's another really important thing if you ever send someone who is busy who has a lot going on an email that is, and I know you know this, Carter. I'm sure you've seen this so many times. That has 15 paragraphs. The only thing that they're going to do is archive it immediately. <laughs> exactly. It's just open up and go, oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Big block so, of text. Yeah. Like, oh, God. Hey, but you know why? Because that's that's uh, what time vampires do. Mm. And, and when you get to a certain position in your business, you really have to avoid time vampires because they will suck all your time. And that's your most valuable asset. That clock doesn't stop ticking. And if you have someone who does that once, they're going to do it again and again and again. And people know that. So you don't want to do that. You want to just short, short, sweet, boom, prove that you have gone the extra mile, that you are you know, coming at this from a really smart angle and uh, do it quickly. If you had the ability to add any one feature to BuildBox tomorrow, what would you add? Um, Multiplayer, which will be coming soon. But when I say multiplayer, I don't mean like simple multiplayer. I want massive, crazy multiplayer. So, and when I say Xbox Live multiplayer. Yeah, exactly. I I want a, a, a full suite, social integration, friends list, um, you know, 500 people at once type thing. And it's something that we're already working on, to be honest, but it's, it's not going to be ready like tomorrow or anything, <laughs> but I wish I could rush that one up. You know, it's, I, I think that's, uh, I think we've already seen that kind of kicking off with Slither and, um, and Agario and, and some of these games. So that's something I'm really excited about. Very cool. What, uh, you, you talked a little bit about this, but what games are you playing right now? Uh, both the, the games themselves and then what consoles and platforms and things like that are you most excited about? Okay, so on VR, I am playing, oh, let's see. i got to be honest with you. I, I love VR so much. I've downloaded probably everything for the Vive, all, all the major ones. But I'm waiting on that killer, killer content for it. Um, Job Simulator is still probably, I think, the best experience in there. And uh, beat that. 
and, and played a lot. Either me or I was playing it with my eight-year-old daughter. So she really, I, I, okay, I'm not going to steal her thunder. She beat that <laughs> and I watched, okay? So that was cool. Um, zombie training simulator. I mean, games like that are really fun. Props to the developers. Um, but there's only so much you can play it. So I'm really, I'm most excited about that because I really enjoy putting on the goggles and doing this. I played Minecraft, Fivecraft uh, on Sunday for the first time. Really cool experience. It's really weird because um, you're, the trees in Minecraft, when you're playing on a computer or on, on Xbox, they don't look that big. But when you're in Vivecraft and you walk up to a tree, it looks like a real tree. So scale is something that doesn't translate well. You know, it's like if you're playing Call of Duty, the buildings don't look like they're four stories tall, right? They, they're like these small buildings on a screen. And that was the, the scale of Minecraft was so fascinating to me because it's all really big when you're inside. So so that type of thing I'm really excited about. Um, but I'm just waiting for the killer app, and I think it will come. I think it's just way, way early. There's, um, a, there's an app that came out. I think you, you tweeted about it. It's like ne- something Sky or Never Sky. Is that right? Yeah, I was about to say that. So for PlayStation 4, No Man's Sky came out. That's right. Um, procedural gen- generated. Really, I mean, I've been following that the whole time. Was stoked. Bought it day it was released on PS4 and on PC. Pre-ordered on both and was really stoked. Um, and you know what's funny, man? I didn't know it was going to be a grinding game. And But I, th- there was two camps. People bought this game and they either loved it or hated it. And I was in the loved it camp. I mean, I absolutely loved it. I was grinding for gold on planets and all this stuff. But then uh, I talked earlier about time being so valuable. And I, I did something really weird with this game. I, I played it like four hours one day, four hours the next day. And I realized all I was really doing was going planet to planet to try to find gold, grind this gold, which grinding just means when you're doing the same thing over and over and over in a game. So it would be like mining gold and then trying to go get a bigger spacecraft. And I I think I really spent like four and a half, five hours just literally staring at gold stacks going click, click, click with my little laser beam thing. I guess would be a better noise for that. But click, click would be more Minecraft. Just going And I was like, you know what, man? I'm too busy. I don't want to spend my, you know, I'd rather hang out with my family. So, so I quit playing. <laughs> I haven't played it since. I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to sit here and do that. But I know people listening who like the game. There's more to it than that. But, uh, but actually, you know, it's terrible. I saw on Reddit today that apparently um, 90% of the people who are playing are not playing now. So I think that the gameplay, I, I really think that there's something there. And I think someone's going to play off of that idea. Um, and maybe it'll be Hello Games. I think John Murray's a smart guy. So I, I think maybe they will even play off of that into something else. But um, but it was a little too grindy. Um, on iPad, I have an iPad Pro, and I'm really enjoying playing games on that. The new game Reigns, I think it's called, where it's like this uh, card game. It's a 99 center. It's a paid app. And you're a king, and you uh, f- like swipe left or right like you're on Tinder. Have you seen this game? I have not seen this game. This is a cool game. Yeah, check out. You know, when you play it like for the first 30, 40 minutes, you don't really know what's going on, um, which I know sounds like a long time, but it's still fun during that process. So it's, you get a deck of cards or square cards really cool art style in this game and the first one would be like you know do you want to marry a girl from a neighboring kingdom you can say yes or no 
if you say yes, then it's going to affect four different elements, which are going to be religion, uh, your army, how happy the people are, and your money. If you say no, it's going to affect four elements. And the whole game is you don't want either of those four elements to die. So you don't want your bar for your money to go to zero or for religion or for any of these. And you don't want them to hit the maximum. So you're just doing these yes or no, like Tinder swipes to these questions. But it gets really deep. Sometimes it gets philosophical, like you have to decide to kill somebody and you know you might it'll help these stats but not these and it's <laughs> it's cool man that's a really that cool sounds one. great um and exploding kittens i bought the card game for that i play it when i get home from work i play it with my two daughters every night and then um uh, you know hang out with the family watch tv and then uh before i go to bed i play a couple games on my ipad as well i really like exploding kittens the guy that made the oatmeal did a Kickstarter campaign with two other people, and they created that game. It was uh, funded for over $8 million, one of the most funded ones. It's really, really fun. And uh, that, I think, covers it. <laughs> Very cool. It's cool to, to also see the, the evolution of games. You know, I think Pokemon Go is kind of a, a trite example, but where the, like the digital and then the physical world start to fuse together, I think that that's, that's a really interesting kind of cyclical uh, world of, of where gaming is going, at least one part of gaming. Yeah, you know, I think just like we talked about the early days of the App Store and how, you know, being there was really cool and, and it's a good idea to be early in scenes. I think everyone should be watching who's in the business should be watching the VR market closely. I'm not saying I would jump and start developing for that market quite yet, Um there is some really cool stuff. Probably the coolest app I've seen is called Soundstage. You build a whole entire studio in VR. And that was always what I was most excited about with AR or VR is the fact that right now the biggest screen you're going to get is a 30-inch. You know, If you're on a Mac, you're only going to get a 27-inch. And if, you have, if you're in VR, you have a million-inch. It's an infinity-inch, right? And, and I saw that with like when I'm working in the studio, I have a keyboard over here and I'm running out of space and it's kind of a pain. But in this app, it has you really have a keyboard and everything. You just snap your fingers or whatever, do a little thing. And then you, you put a synthesizer here, a mixer here, and you can just cover up your whole entire like all around you. So I think there's going to be some really interesting things to happen in productivity there, too. Mm. Um we're a remote company. I mean, how cool would it be to work with people next to you? I think that'd be better for AR. You know, I don't know if I really want to live in VR. Um, but it would be really cool to have Magic Leap or whatever they're working on, have that on and look over. And, and Natalie, who's in Iowa, is, you know, is, is sitting next to me. That'd be cool. So, <laughs> yeah. Magic Leap, that's it. That's, that's the next one. Uh, uh, speaking of Magic Leap, we got a few, few more questions um then we can we can wrap this up with magic leap i think they're based in florida and you were you lived in florida you were in southern california and then you moved to florida correct me if i'm wrong you moved to florida and then you moved to silicon valley last last year maybe or early this year and uh how what's how's that that been going from a place like florida silicon valley dude it was it it would yeah I, i do not recommend moving across the country two times in 12 months um, and, and it wasn't just 
us. You know, we have Nick and his whole family, our chinchillas, um, <laughs> our cats. We have kids. The chinchillas, man. You, you got to, you have to yeah. get the chinchillas. God, have to, uh, you know, you have to get new doctors. You have to get new schools. So, yeah, so we were in Southern California and I, my family, you know, I'm from the East Coast. I'm, I'm from Georgia. So um, my family moved to Florida and we thought, you know what, man, this would be good to relax, to just chill out. We moved to Sarasota where like the water is beautiful, most beautiful beaches, often ranked number one beach in the world or in America rather. Um, really flat though. And that's one thing I really like the, uh, I liked the waves used to surf every day. Right. So, um, but it is beautiful though. No question. The color of the water, the white sand, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so we thought it would just be kind of chill and, and, and it was, you know, the problem was too chill. It was it was it was way too chill for what I was trying to do. I was in this transitional period. I hadn't launched Buildbox yet, so you know, I was in this transitional period where where I was making the decision to move completely into software, um, I, and it was either going to go to the Silicon Valley area or go there. And I was like, you know what? I think that would be more relaxing and, and we'll do that instead of doing the rat race. And went there. Then we launched Buildbox and it blew up. And we you know in a good way, right? And we. We're like, oh my God, you know, here we got this thing that's super hot that, that that's doing well. I think I need to cultivate this. Um, and I realized, e- even though it was a beautiful place, it was the wrong move for for us at that time. So, um, and my wife is actually the one who um, who suggested moving. She was like, look, I, I don't think this is the best the best place for uh, you right now. And so we moved uh, here, and here we are. We're in, um, you know, I'm in Silicon Valley and having a blast. Very cool. And you've you've mentioned uh, your daughters a few times, and I, I believe you named one of your app companies after a daughter, if I, if I remember that correctly, back in the day. And I'm really interested, because uh, I don't think this gets asked very often in podcasts, but what it's like having a family and being an entrepreneur and, you know, a, an ambitious entrepreneur with a very successful company. How has that been uh, through your journey? Yeah, you know, it's great. Um, my oldest daughter is named Kaya and she's about to turn 13 and you're right. The, the first app company I made was Kaya bit and she's obviously loves the video game stuff. And so does Willow is my, um, is my nine year old just turned nine last week and they both really love the game business and, and Kaya's gotten very, very interested in, in entrepreneurship period. She goes to school in Palo Alto, so that doesn't hurt. It's crazy. Everyone here is, is crazy about about businesses and stuff like that. So she is she's really to draw manga and anime and she's really, really good at it. And so she has a company that she started with her friends and they're in elementary school. She's now about to go into seventh grade, but um and was doing that, you know, for fun, giving everyone job roles and it was her company and she um, you know, had had everything set up, was asking me about investments and all this stuff and and learning. So she she loves it. I mean, she she's grown up with with me talking to her about it. And, and that's one thing I've tried to do. I don't never talk to them, um, you know, like baby talk about stuff. You know, if if you know, I, I've talked to them about what's going on and she's really knowledgeable. She's extremely smart and, and so is Willow. So yeah, so it's been fun. I think uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the, there'll be low entrepreneurs. Now, you know, then you have the other side, you know, we'll talk about the dark side, the work side and all that stuff. But I, you know, I have rules. I had last week, I had two investors, um, actually two weeks ago that, um, 
they said, hey, let's hook up. Uh, you know, we want to talk to you. We're not looking for investment, but, you know, I'll meet with people and talk to them. And they said, why don't, why don't we meet up on Saturday? I was like, no, I don't work Saturday. You know, and they're like, wow, really? Well, how about Sunday? I was like, no, you know, don't do that either, bro. <laughs> and so and we ended up not meeting. And I was like, whatever, you know, I'm not going to, I mean, he wasn't rude or anything, but it was just like kind of fell apart because of that. And I mean, and you could tell these guys were super hustlers and, and I'm a, and I'm a hustler during the week, but on the weekend I'm a family man. Yeah. So, you know, you, you got to take the time off, you know, and you can't let it consume you. And, and I'll say this, I'm much better in my, I, I'm 38 now. I'm much better in my late thirties, um, at managing the time than I was in my early thirties. I've, uh, I've learned, but also now the business is, you know, is growing and all that. So maybe some of the, the harder parts, it's not easy now or will ever be, but, uh, the harder parts are probably done. So, um, but yeah, so it, it's a balancing act and you have to be really careful with it. But, um, but one thing I've done is include my kids in entrepreneurship instead of alienating myself from them in that process. Very cool. Very cool. If you could have lunch with anybody, who would it be and why would you want to have lunch with them? Okay, that's a good question. All right, if I could have lunch with anyone, alive or dead or alive? Yeah, any, any, anything you want. All right, right now it would be Mark Benioff. And have you read much on him? I, I've done some research on him, just about you know his kind of rise to Salesforce and you know, starting at a Tony Robbins concert. But uh, yeah, not I haven't read a bio or anything. Oh, man, you got to read uh, the cloud one. It's uh, I never remember the name of books. It's always embarrassing. But um, but yes, it's, uh, I mentioned earlier, I'm reading his book right now and really interesting stuff. I really and there's so many parallels to what we're doing. You know, his whole thing was the end of software um, was his whole pitch for f for Salesforce. And our whole thing is ending coding. So there's a lot of parallels and there's a lot of uh, questions I would love to, to ping him on. So that would be that would be right now the uh, the a person because he also is in SAS and all that. And so that would be a fun person to talk with. Who knows? Maybe I'll e email him. I don't know. Yeah. Him. I, I, I would also <laughs> say I would also say that uh, aside from business, he or I guess this is part of business. He is one of the most impressive philanthropists not only in San Francisco, but in the, in the entire country. I mean, oh, totally. He's done and, some incredible stuff for hospitals and for kids, and it's it's really impressive. And since the beginning, and he he said, you know, most people try to wait and wait until they make all their money to give it away, but we just decided that Salesforce was going to do it right at the beginning. And he's got this whole like Buddhist thing, you know, going on. He just seems like a real interesting dude. Yeah, absolutely. If you were going to give. A graduation speech at Stanford, what would the title of your speech be? The title of my speech. I think you sent me questions. I didn't look at these, so I'm going to wing it, okay? <laughs> Great. Um, honestly, and it wouldn't probably go over well, but I'm not prepared, so I'm just going to say the first thing that comes to mind. My mantra, I didn't graduate from college. <laughs> <laughs> so my mantra has always been model and improve. And that has been the if you were going to say, what is the single you know, biggest reason for success in your companies? I would say that. So that would be the title I would have a because uh, they don't teach that in college. Hmm. And and I think that, you know, it's you hear a lot of people talking about how the biggest way to screw up a startup is hire a bunch of MBAs. 
like if, if the whole founding team has a lot of MBAs, then they're screwed. It's more of a, of a gag, right? HubSpot, actually, the whole entire founding team was, was MBAs. They did great. So this is not dissing on anyone with the MBA. Uh, you know, and and I'll, I'll, we'll talk about college for a second because there's some aspects there, too, that was really difficult for me to figure out with trial and error or talking to people or reading and stuff like that. Uh, a lot of the financial parts of running a company, um, you know, a lot of the reporting, um, even with SaaS and all that kind of stuff, moving into that and having to understand churn and, and how to find all these metrics, what they all mean and you know, the correct way to measure it. And I think a lot of that kind of stuff, some of that would help. But the one thing they're not going to teach you is is some of the fundamental basic principles like model and improve. And I think that's really important for for any company who um, who wants to do something. And you know, even the companies that we think are, are, are so innovative and and. Apple fans think Apple's innovative and people who hate Apple, you know, hate them or because they think they're not. But the truth is, I think they're like the ultimate at that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they they rarely are first to market, rarely, rarely are first to market, whether it's their streaming service. And then they were with touch screens. Right. But they I mean, if you look at any other product these guys had uh, from iPod to streaming services, to iCloud, to all this stuff. It was uh, second, third to market. They wait until the market's proven, then they enter the market um, and improve upon what's there. And and I think that is, from a business perspective, if I wasn't going to focus on anything philosophical or or anything, but just real usable, usable, actionable stuff, I think that's an important lesson. Very cool. I love it. Well, Trey, this has been great. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that, you want to say before we wrap this up man i think we have it well covered i will say this it was really a pleasure talking with you that was a fun interview yeah this was great and uh it was just there's so much good information it's just also really cool to to hear about what you're doing with Buildbox and you know to, to see you grow this thing into you know the next the next sales force so it's gonna be exciting yeah thank you man we're, we're just getting started but i'm i'm very pumped Cool. Well, we'll we'll uh, put this on the show notes, and uh, we'll be seeing you, I guess, in November in San Francisco at our our Blue Cloud event, which is great. Yeah, can't wait. I'll definitely be there. This has been another episode of the Blue Cloud Podcast. For more information on app development, eBooks, reliable source codes, and more, expand your mobile knowledge by going to BlueCloudSolutions.com.